Please open your Bibles to the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah as we continue following the Advent reading tradition and I'm preaching on the text that we are reading. I just thought that would be a unique and new way to do it. Uh, I think I've done it once before. I don't know if it was here or not, probably in Louisiana. But uh, with that said, Hear now the word of the Lord as we read the first 11 verses of Isaiah chapter 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we open your word, we do so with anticipation and expectation. We know that you speak to us through your word as the Holy Spirit takes it and works its way into our soul. And we do pray that you would bless your word today, that you would breathe upon it, that it would find its way past our defenses, that it will stir us up in our lethargy, that it will give us life where there is um, a loss of strength and hope and courage. This we pray, Lord, knowing and believing that your word stands forever, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this chapter 40 comes right after chapter 39 in the book of Isaiah, which is all about Judah going into exile and what will happen to Jerusalem as a result of that, and it is the worst possible uh, thing that could ever happen to any people or any nation who trusted in the Lord. Uh, exile into Babylon, 
the Babylonian captivity was the equivalent to a person living in Jerusalem, a believer in Yahweh, of going to hell. It was being cut off and abandoned from the face of God. Going into captivity was the lowest of the low. And so the people were at a state of utter disillusionment, disappointment, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of losing all strength, not being able, as it were, to put one foot in front of the other. Now, I racked my brain really hard this week to think of the first time I ever experienced disappointment and despondency, and it was when I was a little boy. And so when I was a little boy, one of my favorite things to do was to play with what I call little men. I had sets of the Civil War, uh, the, the North and the South. I had sets of Vikings invading a castle and all of the little men in arms. And I loved cowboys and I loved Indians. And I know all that's probably uh, not PC today. But I love that stuff, and so one day I happened to get in my hands, it was either a copy of Boy's Life, this tells you how old I am, or Grit, and there was a little advertisement on the back, and the advertisement was no bigger than this, and it said, 300 cowboys and Indians all riding horses. So I cut that little thing out of it, and I went home and I told my mother, I want this, I, I've saved my allowance, I want to pay for this, I want to send off for this. And she said, okay, uh, I guess she wanted me to learn a lesson. She might have known more than I thought she knew at the time. So I fell for it, and I sent it in, and for the next six weeks, I absolutely annoyed uh, every fiber of her being, asking her, has it come yet? Has it come in the mail yet? I was looking for this huge box, so think about it. 300 horses, they had to be that big. 300 little men, they had to be that big. And so I pestered her and pestered her, nagged her and nagged her, and continually uh, beseeched her to go to the mailbox and see if it had come. Well, we took a little vacation, and on the way back, I saw something on the front porch. And I have to tell you, it was like, Christmas morning, only better. And so I jumped out of the car and I ran up to the porch and I saw a little box about this big. <laughs> about this big. And I said, that can't be it. There's no way that can be it. Maybe that's checks that my mom and dad have gotten from the bank. This is about the size that it was. But it had my name on it. So I took that little box and I ripped it open and the <laughs> these horses and these men were about this big. Now, you know, because I've told you before, I have two brothers, one older, one younger. They laughed me to scorn. I was in a puddle. I was absolutely broken. Life had no meaning or purpose for me anymore. I had first, for the first time in my life, been really ripped off. And I just remember saying, this can't be true. Mom, get on the phone and call these people and tell them that I'm supposed to be getting. She said, well, son, that's what it is. And she said, did you read this under the ad? And I said, no. She said, this is not the official size. And then it gave it measurements of how tiny these things were. Now, that certainly doesn't compare to going into captivity for Judah, but it does remind us that our lives are sometimes more filled with disappointment and brokenness than we would like to say. When we see how far we have fallen and how broken the world is, it explains something. 
It explains why disappointment pervades our experience. And it seems as we see more and more of life and as we're confronted with disappointment so persistently, so convincingly, hope starts to look like it's just plain stupid. And I think that tends to happen. We become disappointed in our ideals, disappointed in a romance, disappointed in our careers, disappointed in the people uh, we trust, disappointed in ourselves. When all human hopes have let us down, we might then be ready for the only real salvation and hope that exists. In chapter 9, Isaiah, as I mentioned a moment ago, predicted that Judah would go into exile in Babylon, and they did a hundred years later, around 586 B.C. The Babylonian army overwhelmed Jerusalem, overwhelmed them, and led the survivors off into captivity at the other end of the Fertile Crescent, a far cry from what God wanted for them. He had said that Abraham would become a mighty nation, that his seed would number more than the stars in heaven, that blessings would fall upon Abraham, and Abraham would be a blessing to the world. But the people of God had dismally failed at their high calling, and now they were paying for it. They were in Babylonian exile. God's people are defeated, bitter, disillusioned. In fact, they believe that God has failed them. That's what we typically do when life doesn't go our way. We blame God. Who hasn't done that? Who hasn't blamed God? He's sovereign. He's in control of all there is. And so when something happens to us that disappoints us or wounds us or leaves us bitter and despondent, if you're bitter about anything in life, you're ultimately bitter at whom? God. And that's exactly where Israel was. And for his part, what does God do? In this text, he comes down to us with a word of comfort. Comfort. He comes down with promises. He comes down with hope that doesn't depend on us at all, but rather upon himself. He promises to display his glory before the whole world. And as we savor his promised salvation, he strengthens us to face anything while we wait. Now you say, well, Pastor Tim, that's before Jesus came. After he came, aren't we in a better condition? Better, but not yet complete. The kingdom is here already, but it's not yet here in its fullness. So our ultimate hope, we're still waiting. We're still in exile, as it were, living in this world. And so this message is just as alive and applicable to us as it was to the people of God under the old covenant. Isaiah 40 begins a new section of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is no longer addressing Judah in his own day. He is being projected by the Holy Spirit out into the future, like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He is looking into his prophetic crystal ball, so to speak, and he is seeing a future day and declaring the gospel to the Jews who are languishing in Babylon and in exile. And he is saying to them and to us, 
God has not abandoned you. Your best days are still ahead. God has a purpose of grace for you better than ever. He is coming to save you. Believe it and let this hope be that which fills your sails in life. So when we think about the book of Isaiah and we begin in chapter 40, we begin a new section. And today the subject has been changed from judgment and exile into hope and into promises. In verses 1 through 11, God comes to his people with comforting promises of worldwide salvation. So there are four things I want to tell you about Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Number one, it's all about the promises of God. It's all about trusting in the promises of God, the sure promises of God. Do you do that? Do you find yourself in life in a situation in which you have no solution, in a situation where you can't really do anything about it, have you ever been in a problem where it's just too big for you and other people are involved and you can't really change it, you can't do anything about it, you pray that God will deliver you from it? This message is for you. God makes promises. He keeps his promises. And so we want to look first of all at the occasion of the, prob of the promise, the comforting promise. Number two, the content. Number three, the certainty. And number four, the spreading. Sometimes we brood over the bitterness of life. And from our bitterness, we tend to think that God must somehow be against us. But he wants to breathe new life and new spirit into us. Will we give ourselves permission to stop resenting him long enough and start delighting in him according to the promises of his gospel. Because at the end of the day, that's all you have are his promises. That's all I have are his promises. Pastor Tim, that sounds depressing. No, it's just true. It's reality. And it's the only reality we really, really live in. And so what is the occasion? There's an end to the discipline of God. Captivity is now over. Faith is not all struggle. It is also sometimes release, hope, and new beginnings. God's deepest intention toward us is comfort. How could it be otherwise? But in fact, Christianity is all about the saving grace of God. You hear that from the pulpit often. He overrules our stupidity with his own absolute pardon through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Do we sin? Yes. Do we suffer for it? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. When his discipline has done its good work, God comes back to us with overflowing comfort. See, it is God, uh, see in God not a frown, but rather a smile. I think it was John Calvin who said, uh, that no one will ever reverence God, but he who is confident that God is favorable toward him. If you think, you look up to heaven and you imagine in your imagination how God's face is toward you, if you see a frown, this message is for you today. You do not see the smile of God upon you, his favor upon you. You need to hear this today. This will be to you like a cool drink of cold water in a long, hot desert. Um, do we sin? Yes, we do. 
We suffer for it? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. When he disciplines and has done his good work, then we come back and experience overflowing comfort. See in God, not a frown, but a smile, not distance from you, but rather nearness. Even when we don't act like the people of God, he still identifies with us. My people, your God, he still calls Jerusalem, even when we're far away in exile. Do you have glad expectations of God? You may, even as a sinner. Do you see God coming down to you as you are, with your mission still unfulfilled, but with his renewing mercies? You may, and you must see God that way, or you'll get absolutely no traction in your life for holiness. The Bible says that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The occasion of God's renewing comfort is our failure. And so when you're sitting there in the despondency and brokenness of failure, that's when God comes near. He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't turn his back on you. He doesn't frown at you. But he comes to you because of what who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. He comes to us in grace, undeserved favor. When we are at a low point, when we have messed up beyond messing up, when we have uh, created calamity, that's when God comes to comfort us, to comfort us. The occasion of God's renewing comfort is our failure. It is as if Isaiah had fallen asleep at the end of chapter 39. While he slept, Judah was taken into exile. And it is as if, in a prophetic dream, Isaiah was lifted into God's heavenly court to hear Judah's predicament being discussed. But now in chapter 40, Rip Van Winkle-like Isaiah wakes up to a new historical situation. He reveals to the Jews what he had heard in the heavenly throne room. God has summoned his prophets to take a message of hope to a very demoralized people. But now let's look at the content of his comforting promise. What is his comforting promise? Well, Isaiah hears a voice. God has commanded his servants, still unidentified, to bring a message of comfort to all the people. Comfort in verse 1 is plural in the Hebrew text. Now Isaiah hears one of those prophetic voices and he hears the content of the comforting message. What is God saying? Three things. Number one, the king is coming. He comes to us as we are, where we are, to the wilderness and desert of our real lives. He wants to get us ready to receive him because right now we are not ready. You don't prepare your soul in order to go to God. He comes to you and prepares you to get ready for himself. That's grace. That's the initiative of God. We know from Luke 3, 1 to 18, that Jesus is the coming king. And the readiness we need is newness of life. We cannot hide behind any kind of label, however correct. What we need is to be a new creation, new selves. Prepare the way of the Lord. Number two, God will accomplish his purpose. Salvation is of the Lord. It is his doing. It is his business. It is what he himself has provided for us. Every valley shall be lifted and so forth. Now Isaiah is not talking about literal topographical change. 
He's talking about the upheaval of true repentance. Remember John the Baptist quoted this. John the Baptist fulfilled this. And John the Baptist preached what? Repentance. And so all of this upheaval pictured with images of topographical stuff like mountains and, and uh, valleys being uh, evened and, and uh, rough ways made smooth, all of that is really a metaphorical way of speaking about moral topography. He's talking about the disruptive advance of salvation. He is saying that lifting and lowering and leveling and smoothing are necessary for the kingdom of Christ. He's talking about depressed people being relieved, pride being flattened, troubled personalities becoming placid. That if we cling to the status quo and refuse God's uh, upsetting but constructive salvation, we risk having no part with Christ. Three... And most importantly, in my opinion, the glory of the Lord Jesus will be revealed to the whole world. We can be certain of it because God has decreed it. He has spoken it. He will do it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. His glory will be admired and delighted in and trembled at everywhere. The great sin of the human race is to make God small. But he has resolved to overcome all God-trivializing obstacles and magnify himself in our eyes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we who are Presbyterians often talk a lot about the glory of God, and we should. Do we understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the glory of God? John Piper's assessment seems accurate. This is in the front of the bulletin. In the church, our view of God is so small instead of huge, so marginal instead of crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of determining, and so uninspiring instead of ravishing that the responsibility to live to the glory of God is a thought without content. The words came out of our mouths, but the average Christian to tell what they know about the glory of God that they are going to live for, and the answer will not be long. We were made for his glory, and one day his glory will be revealed, and we will see it. And we will never be the same. What is the glory of the Lord? His glory is the fiery radiance of his very nature. It is his blazing beauty at Mount Sinai. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming or devouring fire. Uh, Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord in the form of a supercharged war chariot coming down from heaven to establish the rule of God on earth. When Jesus was born, the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds, and they were terrified. Now, sometimes we think, if I saw the glory of God, I would dance. Probably not first. Probably the first thing you do is dive under the chairs. Because the glory of the Lord is terrifying to creatures like ourselves who still have sin. And so... The Bible says that Jesus himself is the ultimate display of the glory of God. John 1.14, his transfiguration on the mountain unveiled his glory. But also, and this is the irony of the gospel, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross in shame, we are seeing the glory of God. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about the cross that way. But the cross is the greatest display of the very glory of God. Our ideas of God's glory have to adjust to his beautiful willingness to humble himself all the way to such a wretched death for people like us. Paul taught us that the arrogant world, to the arrogant world, or in this arrogant world, only a weak and foolish gospel can reveal the Lord of glory. The cross of glory shames all human pride. But when Christ returns, how different it will be. He will appear in overwhelming glory and every eye will see it. People mock him now. People talk about him. The best they do is tip their hat at him and say maybe he's a good moral teacher. Maybe he was a decent man. But no, he is the Lord of glory. And that glory was veiled in his first coming. But in his second coming, it will be unveiled. And the entire cosmos will see it. And it will literally, the earth will be consumed as if fire. Because the glory of Jesus is being revealed. And we will participate and share in that glory, those of us who know Jesus. I mean, what a future for us. What an amazing future. I mean, you think some of the things you go to in this world to watch and attend, and you were glad you were there, and it was a glorious uh, play or a glorious game or a glorious uh, concert. But think about the glory of the Lord of glory coming to this earth. He will appear in glory, and God has called us to share in that glory. Believers stand to inherit an eternal weight of glory, and throughout et in eternity, the new Jerusalem will need no sun or moon. The glory gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God is, in Hebrew, the word kabod, and the glory means heaviness, weightiness, substantial. It is something that you will reckon with. It's something you can't run from or hide from. And it will come when Jesus comes. The glory of the Lord himself is God himself becoming visible. God bringing his presence down to us. God displaying his unspeakable beauty before us. The true answer to our deepest longing, and he promises to do this for us, it is the central promise of the gospel, and that is what we were made for. Isaiah 43 tells me that I was made for his glory. That is what my heart hungers for. And the most ridiculous, stupid thing I do every day is seek my own glory. Because that will never fill the emptiness of my soul, the hole in my soul. The only thing that will is beholding his glory. And as we do that, it transforms us. It changes us. It makes us new. As we said in Sunday school, it doesn't make us less human. It makes us more human. Like the glorified humanity, ultimately, of Jesus Christ. God has kept his promise in the hidden glory of Christ's first coming. He has continued to keep his promise as the Holy Spirit awakens us to the glory of Christ in the gospel. And he will consummate his promise at the second coming of Christ. All this is contained in seed form in Isaiah 40 and verse 5. Let me tell you something about how to deal with prophecy. Most people go to the Old Testament and they look at a word of prophecy, do the same thing with covenants, by the way, and they think this means that and that's all. 
In other words, a virgin shall conceive and bear forth, bring forth a son. That actually happened historically when the prophecy was given. It was fulfilled in a greater way at the birth of Jesus Christ in the manger in Bethlehem, but ultimately will be expressed in its fullness in the second coming. All prophecy has those three meanings. Historical fulfillment, fulfillment in the first coming of Christ, fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. So we haven't really seen the glory that we will see when he returns. But uh, get ready for it, because it's coming. Don't know when, but we're one day closer than we were yesterday. God has kept his promises. All of it is contained in seed form in Isaiah 40. Our part is to have the courage to welcome him with a bold restructuring of our lives. Nothing could be greater for us than to be wonderfully disrupted by the power of this hope. It is worth the upheaval. Some of you are suffering right now. Some of you are undergoing upheaval. Some of you are living in chaos. And the purpose of it is to prepare you for that glory. No suffering uh, in the present time is worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said, if you ever, ever saw a glorified creature, you would fall on your face and worship him. And I think he's correct on that. Well, let's look at the third point, because you're not listening fast enough, the certainty of his comforting promise. Isaiah hears another voice as he's lifted, as it were, up into the counsel of God. And he, this voice gives him a message to declare. It's a strange message. Isaiah is told to tell us that we are unreliable. God's promise is infallible. We are not. And it must be said. Remember King Hezekiah in chapter 39. My people, even my own sons, will someday be slaves in Babylon. No problem as long as I die comfortably in bed. He sounds like a lot of us. Even our good intentions are inconstant. Like the flower of the field, we blossom only under ideal conditions, not under the blast of real life. That's why Christianity is never about what we can do. But it is about what God promises to do on our behalf. Christianity is not fundamentally challenged. Fundamentally, it is assurance. Let me say that again. Christianity is not fundamentally challenged. God throwing the gauntlet down and seeing if you can measure up. He already knows we can't measure up. If we could measure up, there'd be no need for Jesus to come. But rather, Christianity is about assurance. It is about us going back to the promises of God, understanding the infallibility of his word and his promise, and staking our claim and being rooted and grounded and filled with hope because of it. You know, I think in another few minutes I'm going to start to preach up here. I think I'm going to start to do it. Like I did when I was a young Baptist preacher. And I know some of you are going right now, that's what's wrong with him. That's what's wrong with him. But not really. So he's telling us uh, that Christianity is not fundamentally challenged, but it's assurance. It must be only God qualifies for anybody's final trust. And he does. 
Because no human power or condition can stop him. We are the merest grass and flowers, but the word of our God will stand forever. Human failure is costly, but it's not the end of our happiness. God's promise of salvation is final. He is committed to his own glory, and our joy is his glory. And in that certainty, our hope can finally come to rest in the glory of that will be ours. Finally, let's talk about the spreading of the promise, which includes the last three verses. Isaiah calls all who cherish this hope to spread their enthusiasm for God's coming glory. He says in verse 9, get way up on the conspicuous location. Turn up the volume. Don't let your fears. I used to go to a lot of rock concerts back when I was a pagan. And... Uh, one of my favorite things that would happen, they would always have the first band come out. I called them the B band. And they would play their music, you know, and they'd try as hard as they could to be great. But they would only let them turn up the volume just a little bit. Then the, the prime band would show up, the second band, the, the, the stars. They'd walk under the stage and wham, it would come. And the wall of sound would knock you back. It's almost as if uh, Isaiah's saying, go to the mountain and crank it up, boys. Share this message worldwide. Let it spread to all nations. Turn up the volume. Don't let your fear keep you silent. Draw attention to God. Say to every everyone around, Look, it is your God. Our God doesn't work at arm's length or only through church programs or just by handing down decrees from on high. He comes. He comes and he comes and he comes. He brings his presence, and his presence is our joy. This is a simple message to spread around. You don't need to know much. You only need the courage of faith. And you only need to know who to turn to. What is your God worth to us all? He's a conquering king. He's a wealthy benefactor. He's a tender shepherd. This is Jesus. What more could you hope for? What more could you hope for? The Geneva Bible of 1560 comments at verse 9, he shows us in one word the perfection of all man's happiness, which is to have God's presence. Spreading the glad excuse me, expectation to others is the best way to amplify our own joy in it. Paul organized his whole life this way. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. C.S. Lewis said this, and he explains how this works, and this is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children. Flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so do they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that was magnificent? 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. You see, that's what praise is, seeing the value of something and being so moved by the value and beauty and glory and attractiveness and suitability for our souls in it, we cannot help but praise it. Showed a lot of people a picture of my most recent grandson. And I know people always give you that look, and I want to show you a picture of my grandson. They go, oh, yeah, 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 do that. Okay. They're not that excited about it. And I'm, I'm not that excited about yours, but to me, <laughs> no, I am. You know, I'm, a, I'm perfect. I'm a pastor. But no, but, but the thing is, I love to see him. He's a delight to me because he's my grandson. He's connected to me. And I praise him. Why? Because I value him. I value Jimmy Paul Rossiter. I value Gabe Modicek. And I value Posey Modicek. Those are my grandchildren. And when I see them, I glory in them. But even more so, when I really see the glory of Christ, when I read Scripture and immerse myself in the Word and pray and use the means of grace and come to the table and sit under the preaching of the Word and sing and praise God with you, that just heightens the experience of it for me. And that's why you need to be here in a worship service regularly. You need to be worshiping with, with the people of God because it's far more than any one person can do us praising together and recognizing the glory together and another reason some of you can't be here and I'm not beating you up for that and thank God we can put it out there for people to hear and see but there's nothing like being here there's nothing like being here when God visits God's purpose is not only that you and I enjoy the comfort of the gospel but that we increase our enjoyment of it by spreading that joy to others all to the glory of God. When was the last time? When was the last time you talked to another people, person about Jesus? When was the last time you shared with someone what he is to you, what he means to you? When did you share your testimony to the reality of Christ? When was the last time you shared the gospel to someone? We are commanded to do that. And if we're, you know... I asked myself one time, why am I reluctant to do that? Why do I find it so hard to do that? Why do I not want to do that? And the answers were never good. They were never pleasant. But if the gospel is working in my life, if I'm truly benefiting from the power of it, I can't shut up about it. I will talk to people about it. Almost everything an unbeliever says to you is an open door to share the gospel. It just really is. Because all of life is ultimately religious. All of it is. You can't stop. They can't talk about a single thing that God doesn't have something to say about. Now, I'm not telling you to be a, a maniac. And I'm not telling you to get a 50-pound Bible and beat people over the head with it. But I'm telling you, winsomely, graciously, at the right time, in the right place, you have opportunity to spread the comforting promises of God. God had told Judah to trust him and no one else. They refused that and they suffered for it. But God does not forsake people who forsake him. His promise, his initiative, his imagination, his grace and glory are our comfort in our failure. You can trust this God even more than you trust yourself. 
You can trust this God. Absolutely. Do you? Have you looked outside of yourself and rested yourself completely upon who he is, what he's done, and the promises he makes to you? Because he's the only promise keeper there is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this word. It is a living thing. It has power in it. It confronts us. It encourages us. It lifts our hearts up to soar. It rebukes us. It um, disciplines us. It shows us the beauty and glory of Jesus. And we pray that you would fill us full of longing for that glory found most fully expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who see the glory and want more of it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.